Bible Biogs in 30 minutes. Through the Bible, one character at a time. Author, pastor and Bible teacher Mike Beaumont is in conversation with David Taverner. So we come to the final episode in this series of Bible biographies. Number 52, it's the last one, and our focus is on Jesus. Mike, why Jesus last? (laughs) Well, I think we've put him last, David, because over these last 51 episodes, we've been tracking some of the, well, sometimes key figures, sometimes lesser figures in the Bible, but through the whole story of the Bible and seeing how everything started with creation, and we focused on Adam and Eve. And the Bible is not just a collection of stories. It is a collection of stories that tells one big story of how God had a plan to put things right when people messed up. And that story of Adam and Eve and the fall and how sin came into the world and has affected people ever since, and how God had a plan to put this right and to build a family for himself, as he called Abraham, who had a son called Isaac, who had a son called Jacob, who had 12 sons that become the 12 tribes of Israel, and how then that story tracks through the story of Israel and all its ups and downs, and how that story said that one day a Messiah, a Savior would come, not only to fix Israel, but to fix the whole world and all who would believe in him. So the whole story of the Bible really leads to and climaxes in this person of Jesus. He is the one who was foretold in the Old Testament. He's the one that it was preparing for. He's the one that the whole story comes to a a climax in. And, And so we kept him for the end because he's the one who holds everything together He's the one who makes sense of all the characters and stories that we've been looking at over our previous episodes. But what would you say to somebody who questions whether Jesus was even a historical figure? Well, I know that's sometimes a a common argument that, that people who don't believe in God or believe in Jesus would show. And I would say a number of things. First of all, you cannot dismiss the evidence of the New Testament, first of all. These are historical records from the time. And sure, I would be the first to say that they have an angle. Um, They are not presented uh, simply factually. They, They do have a purpose in being written, but so does every newspaper article that we ever read these days, and we don't dismiss it. So there's evidence within the Gospels themselves and evidence that these Gospels go back to the earliest of times. But it's not just within the Gospels and the New Testament that we get evidence for Jesus. We do get evidence outside of the New Testament as well. For example, one of the earliest is is from the Roman writer uh, Tacitus, who uh, speaks about how the emperor Nero uh, tried to blame the great fire of Rome in AD 64 on the Christians. And and he specifically says that Nero fastened the guilt on a class hated for their abominations called Christians by the populace. Christus, from whom the name had its origin, suffered the extreme 
penalty during the reign of Tiberius at the hands of Pontius Pilate. So there is a non-Christian secular author just a few years after the death of Jesus referring very clearly to the existence of a historical character, Jesus, and to the Christian community uh, that grew up around his name. Pliny the Younger is another time who in one of his letters um, around about AD 112 asked for the Emperor Trajan's advice about the appropriate way to conduct legal proceedings against Christians. Uh, And he talks about what they do. He says that they were in the habit of meeting on a certain fixed day before it was light when they sang in alternate verses a hymn to Christ as God. So there are just a couple of examples of secular writers who were opposed to Christianity, yet acknowledging the historical existence of this person of Jesus and the group of Christians that grew around him. And you mentioned the Gospels. Those are what, sort of four portraits in a sense of the life of Jesus. And the fact that we've got not just one or two or three, but we've got four Gospels says something about the need to have those four portraits. Yes, and each of them gives their own sort of slant on the life of Jesus. It's clear reading them all that they are substantially the same story. In fact, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, what we call the synoptic Gospels, synoptic means told from the same viewpoint, actually have pretty much the same material in them at certain points. Um, But they have their special interests. Matthew had a special interest in showing how Jesus fulfilled so many of the prophecies of the Old Testament story that we've been tracking as we've looked at some of our characters. Luke is much more interested in telling the story from the angle of Jesus's interest in in the poor and the the outsiders and the marginalized. John is is interested in, he becomes at it with a slightly more sort of philosophical or perhaps reflective angle and just picks out uh, a select number of teachings and acts of Jesus to, to apply them. So each of them has their own slant, but together these four give us therefore a much more rounded picture of Jesus. And by the way, it's interesting that there were in the early church more than four gospels, but the early church rejected some of them because they recognized that they didn't ring true for the Jesus that they knew. So for example, one example is the so-called gospel of Thomas, an, an apocryphal gospel where Thomas has Jesus when he was a young boy playing and making pigeons, doves, out of the mud that he was playing with and then blowing on them, breathing on them, and them coming alive and these doves flying away. And the early church thought, this doesn't resonate with Jesus at all. His miracles weren't cheap tricks for the benefit of himself. They were demonstrations of who he was and what he'd come to do. And so they rejected that gospel pretty early and said, this isn't true. This is this is just made up stories. And it's interesting that the early church knew they had to discern between stories that gave an account of the real Jesus and stories that people perhaps good-heartedly had made up, but they recognized were not authentic reflections of the real historical Jesus and who he was and what he'd come to do. So if you were looking to 
find a biography of Jesus in a gospel for the first time, you've never read a story about him before, which 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 one would you go for? Well, I would recommend to, to most people in the West these days, perhaps who are not familiar with the Bible or the story of Jesus at all, uh, my recommendation would probably be to start with Luke's gospel. Matthew's got so many references to the Old Testament that if you don't catch the link, it's it's hard to follow. John also has so many references to the Old Testament. So we're left with either Mark or Luke. Mark is a much simpler gospel, more straightforward. Jesus is the man of action in Mark. Um, one of his favorite phrases is, and immediately Jesus went and did this, and immediately he went and did that. So if you want something short, punchy, focuses on what he did, Mark. If you want something, yeah, that tracks the story pretty well of the historical Jesus and gives the key points of his teaching and, and reflects well who he is, my suggestion mainly these days is for people is to start with Luke's gospel, which gives us a pretty good picture into who Jesus was and why he came. And does it give that sort of arc of the story of Jesus from birth right through to death and resurrection? Yes, absolutely, um, because Luke starts right at the beginning, uh, as you said, with those uh, birth stories, the, the stories we're familiar with hearing at, at, at Christmas time. Well, actually, in truth, he starts with John the Baptist, who was the, the forerunner of Jesus, the one who prepared the way, and then he quickly moves from that and shows how John's role was to be that prophesied forerunner of Jesus that the prophet Malachi had spoken about. And then from chapter two, he tells us the story of the birth of Jesus and very quickly summarizes his early years. We get very, very little about the childhood of Jesus. And, and then by chapter three, we've suddenly got to John the Baptist's ministry and how Jesus was baptized. And in chapter four, how God then calls him out of that baptism to, to go through that time of temptation and to go back to his hometown. And he he stands up there in the synagogue in his hometown and he's given the scroll to read the reading for that day. And it just happens to be this, the spirit of the Lord is upon me because he's anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He sent me to proclaim that captives will be released, that the blind will see, that the oppressed will be set free and that the time of the Lord's favor has come. And then he hands the scroll back and he says, today this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. And that was a summary of what Jesus's life and ministry would be about. And so Luke tracks then some of the teaching of Jesus, some of the miracles of Jesus. You know, those two belong to together. Uh, the teaching of Jesus, particularly in things we call parables, which were simple stories taken from everyday life, but that had profound meanings. His parables were an explanation of what the kingdom of God is like, and his miracles were a demonstration of what the kingdom is of God is like. Look, when God comes, when you allow God to be king in your life, things happen like the sick get healed and lepers get cleansed and even the dead get raised. And so these Parables and miracles work together throughout the whole of the gospel, revealing more and more of who Jesus is, the Son of God, come into this world to do two things. First, to show us what God is like. One of the key themes that comes out 
in Luke's gospel is Jesus's teaching about God being like a father. The story of the prodigal son where the son goes away, wastes all his father's money. But when he comes to his senses and comes back, there is the father waiting, ready to welcome him. And that, Jesus says in Luke 15, is exactly what Father God is like. You may have wandered far away from him. You may have been stupid and squandered all you had in life. But God, your Father, is always ready to welcome you back. So by parables, explanations, by miracles, demonstrations, he's showing us what Father God is like, but also how Father God wants to welcome us back. And that's where the story leads in to the cross. Jesus being crucified, not as sort of some political necessity. We have to get rid of this guy. Yes, there was that element at one level. But throughout the Gospels, we see Jesus preparing his disciples, even though they didn't understand that this is what lay at the end of his life. He tells them again and again that the Son of Man is going to have to go up to Jerusalem and suffer many things and be crucified. But on the third day, he said he would rise from the dead. And that's exactly what happened. He is crucified. And it looks like he's crucified because Rome and the religious readers want to get rid of this troublemaker. But what comes out both in the Gospels and in the letters of the New Testament is that when Jesus died on that cross, he was dying not for his own sins, but for ours. He was actually dying in the place of you and me and everybody listening to this episode. He's actually paying the price of your sins because the Bible tells us the wages of sin is death. And Jesus says, you deserve to die for your sin, but you know what? I'll take your place. I'll die in place of you. I'll take your death. You take my life. I'll give you a new start and a new beginning. And to prove that he had conquered sin and death once and for all, the Gospels tell us that three days after his death, on that Sunday, the Father raises him from the dead to show him that neither sin nor death are more powerful than Jesus. He has conquered them. And that whoever will believe in him, he can give that gift of life to also. And Luke's gospel ends with Jesus returning to heaven, back to his rightful place at the right-hand side of his father. But then in the book of Acts, Luke tells us how he sends the Holy Spirit to be with us and change our lives from within. So this is a fantastic story that we get tracked through the gospel of Luke and through the other three gospels too. I'm conscious that in the 51 other biographies, we've often said, each of these people are a bit like us. In this case, if you were to read this story for the first time, surely you would think this is unbelievable, this life of Jesus. Well, I think he is a bit like us and he's a bit not like us. I mean, he is like us at one level because the Bible is really clear that when Jesus came into this world, he truly became a human being. Here's the mystery of what we call the incarnation, God becoming man. That God 
God the Son was willing to leave behind in heaven his, his glory and his power and his majesty and to become a real human being as the Holy Spirit comes upon Mary and so does a miracle within her that Jesus is conceived within her womb and he begins to develop as a real human being. And one of the things that Luke in particular stresses in his gospel is the way that this Jesus, when he was born, then grew up as a real human being. One of my favorite verses at the end of Acts chapter 2 is that Jesus grew in wisdom and in stature, in favor with God and with people. He grew mentally or intellectually, physically, spiritually, socially. There's a real human development. He's so much like us that that Paul will describe him in the New Testament as the last Adam and the second man. He's the last Adam because he's going to end Adam as Adam has become and has got to live and a second man because he's going to start off a, a brand new human race for all who will believe in him. The author of Hebrews talks about Jesus being tempted in every way like we are, facing everything we do, and yet he did not sin. So there is a, a point at which Jesus is most definitely like us. We'll find him being hungry and thirsty. We'll find him crying at the tomb of Lazarus, his friend, even though he knew that death wasn't the end for him. We'll find these very human things. We'll find him needing to eat. We'll find him getting so dog tired that he falls asleep in a boat while a storm comes up. So there's much in there that we can identify with him because he lived a real human life. And yet this human was also at the same time, the son of God. And what he's showing us is what life can be like when we put our trust implicitly in God our Father. So as we read the Gospels, we find points of connection. Yeah, I feel tired. I feel hungry. I feel tempted. I got dog weary. And yet points of disconnection where we're meant to think, I couldn't do that. And the answer is no, you couldn't. Not without Jesus. Not without a brand new beginning. Not without the new birth that he spoke about to the Pharisee Nicodemus that we looked at in a previous episode. So there's similarity yet dissimilarity. The similarity lets us know he's walked our path, he understands us fully, yet the dissimilarity lets us know there is more and he is the one that can open the door to that more as we trust in him and come to know God as our Heavenly Father. With most biographies, you can read about somebody. When you actually meet them, that's another experience altogether. <laughs> How does that work with Jesus? Well, I think, you know, you, you could, I, I read the Bible before I became a Christian. In fact, I remember when I was at school and we used to have assemblies in those days that were focused around the Bible and Bible readings doesn't always happen these days, does it? Rarely happens, certainly in the United Kingdom. Um, and I remember I used to be a pretty good reader and I always used to get the privilege of reading the scripture at, 
at the end of term, at the end of term assembly. And I remember reading, and I tell you what, I used to read it really well. I can even remember it. Rejoice in the Lord always. And again, I say rejoice. <laughs> Let your moderation be known unto all men. The Lord is at hand. <laughs> Quoting from the old version of Philippians there. But you know what? I didn't know the Lord was at hand at that point. All I was doing was I was reading the stories. And yet when I became a Christian at the age of 18 through being invited along to a church youth club by some friends and seeing the difference that Jesus made for them and coming to the point where Jesus became Lord of my life, it, it, it was like the difference between reading in black and white and colour. You know, I'm old enough to remember when television went from broadcasting in black and white and in colour and you used to watch things like the snooker or the billiards on TV and <laughs> the commentator used to have to tell you that the, the ball at the top right was red because you couldn't see it was red. <laughs> and when colour TV came, it was like an incredible transformation. I thought, wow, I've never seen it like that before. And you can read the Bible and it's good to read the Bible and you can read the facts, but at the moment when you come to know the person of Jesus, when you said, Jesus, you know what? I can't do this life without you. I need you. Forgive me my sins. Come into my life. Fill me with your spirit. It's like it comes alive. And suddenly you, you start reading these stories about Jesus as someone you now know and who, of course, someone you will meet one day. And you're not alone. I mean, how many people, here we are 2,000 years on, have followed in the way you have? Well, it's incredible, isn't it? And that's one of the wonderful things about our faith. You know, Christianity is meant to be personal, but it is not meant to be private. And particularly in Britain, you know, people can think, well, religion's a private thing, isn't it? No, no, it's, it, it's not. If you really encounter Jesus, you discover that when you come to Jesus, you discover in coming close to him, a whole bunch of other people have come close to him as well. And you suddenly find you're part of a big family. You've got brothers and sisters there in your local church. And for me, it's been such a privilege to be a pastor for nearly 40 years and to be like, you know, the, the head of the family, as it were, the leading one of the family. And yet I'm not the head of the family. Jesus is, Father God is. But the privilege of, of being part of a family and of men and women of different ages and different cultural backgrounds. And, and I have friends who believe in Jesus, you know, who are, who are not just British and not just American, but I've got Ugandan friends and Kenyan friends and friends from Zimbabwe and India and China and, and Myanmar and all sorts of places. And to know we are part of a big family, all of these people who've discovered Jesus for themselves, but you're not on your own. You're part of a big family. And that's why I'd say, you know, anyone who's become a Christian who isn't part of a local church, for goodness sake, find yourself a local church. And if, if you go to one one Sunday and it, it, it just doesn't feel right for you, go and try another one because you know, churches have their different shapes and styles and find one where you feel at home, where you can feel family because we are not meant to live this life with Jesus on our own. We're not even meant to live this life of Jesus with just podcasts or looking at things online, useful as those can be. We're meant to live this life 
with Jesus in community with others. And that's why being part of local church is so important because it's there that I can find brothers and sisters who will both help, encourage and challenge me and for whom I can do the same. In the grand order of things, where is Jesus now? The New Testament tells us that after Jesus's resurrection, he spent 40 days with his disciples doing what? First, convincing them he really had risen and helping them now to understand all his teaching about the kingdom of God in the light of his resurrection. But 40 days after his resurrection, he ascended back to his father. That sounds a bit of a religious word, doesn't it? It means it simply went back up. And so at the end of Luke's gospel and at the beginning of Acts, we we find this account of Jesus returning to his father in heaven. Now, where is heaven? Well, it's not just above the clouds and it's not, you know, third right after Mars, then second left. Heaven is another dimension, is how I often describe it. It's, it's as close as this, yet it's as far as that, because it's another dimension. I, you know, I think in days of sci-fi and Doctor Who and Star Wars, we at least understand the concept of other dimensions. And Jesus is now back with God the Father and God the Holy Spirit there in heaven. The New Testament describes him as sitting at the right-hand side of his father. Now, the right-hand side in ancient times was seen as the position of honour. And he's in the place of honour. Why? Because he willingly submitted to the father's plan to come to earth as a human being, to live, to be cruelly put to death, but to be raised by his father again on the third day. And because of that, the father honours him. Paul talks about that in Philippians chapter 2, where where he says that uh, Jesus didn't count equality as something to be clung onto, but he emptied himself and took the humble position of a slave. And he says, therefore, God highly exalted him and gave him the name that is above every other name, that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue declare that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. So he's there in heaven. What's he doing? Well, Revelation gives us a bit of a glimpse because that too shows us clearly Jesus seated on his throne at the right-hand side of the Father. He's, he's hearing our prayers. He's in control of history. And he and the Father and the Spirit together, these three persons of the one Godhead, are together furthering that purpose that they've had right from the beginning, superintending history, even when it seems crazy at times, Even when it goes against us, Revelation shows, Jesus is still in control, bringing things towards that climax at the end. So he's in this place of authority and glory and power. And that's why when we pray to Jesus, we're praying to someone who's who's walked through it, who's done it, who's conquered it, who's ruling over all things. And so we can bring our prayers to him in heaven with with great confidence and conviction that he will hear us 
and that he'll answer us. Not always in the way we might want, but he's at work furthering out his plan and his purpose in this universe. There's a belief that Jesus will will return again. Absolutely. And that's a belief that goes back to Jesus himself. Um, There are several occasions in the Gospels where Jesus speaks uh, very clearly about how he will return at the end of the age. Sometimes that's just through teaching. Sometimes it's through parables. And he tells us that, you know, he's going to come. And therefore, he says things like, therefore, keep watch, because you don't know uh, when I'm going to return. In fact, there's only one person who knows the time of Jesus's return. Jesus himself said, and that's his father in heaven. And that's why giving so much time to trying to work out the times and dates of when Jesus will come is such a waste of time because God the Father is the only one who will know. But Jesus was very clear in his own teaching. The letters of the New Testament therefore build on that and are also very clear that Jesus is going to return at the end of human history. It will be sudden. It will be unexpected and it will bring about the climax of God's plan. Now, I do need to say in fairness that that Christians do have slightly different views about the order of things and how these things will, will happen. And some Christians believe there'll be a thing called the rapture when Christians are whisked off to heaven and others don't believe that that will happen. And both of them are trying to work out what the scriptures say. You know, I often liken the teaching of Jesus is is a bit like a 10,000-piece jigsaw, but it's a double-sided jigsaw. And the trouble is some pieces look like they could fit in the same place or in different places, and I think that's why we come up with different views of the detail of Jesus' return. But my appeal would be this. Listen, let's not get into fights and squabbles over it. Let's not get into dissing other Christians because they have a slightly different view of how it's going to happen. The key fact to remember is it will happen. Jesus will return at the end of human history. And what will he do? He will gather all those who've believed in him, those who are now safe in heaven with him and his father, those who've died before his return, those who are still living on earth at the time, And he will take them and they will be with him forever. And here's the bit that surprises many Christians, forever not in heaven. Heaven is but a glorious waiting room. Because Revelation 21 talks about John seeing a new heaven and a new earth. And he says, I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down from God out of heaven, where? To earth. And at the end, God is going to renew and transform this earth and give us spiritual bodies to live on a transformed earth. And it's described as a a glorious city, the most beautiful thing he could think of in Revelation 21. And if 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 that shocks some of our readers, then please take a look at Revelation 21 and 22 for yourself and see very clearly that heaven comes down to earth at the end. But there's a solemn note. 
we have to add. Because Revelation is very clear also, and Jesus was very clear in his own teaching, that when he returns, there will be a final judgment. And for those who have not believed in Jesus, the words that they will hear is, depart from me, I never knew you. And they will find that they are spending eternity not in heaven, not in a new earth, but in that place that the Bible calls hell. You know, we don't speak much about that these days, but Jesus spoke about it a lot. And he uses lots of language to describe it, lots of picture language. It's a place of darkness. It's a place of fire. You might think, how can it be both darkness and fire? But what he's bringing out is, look, this is a place you don't want to spend eternity. This is not where you want to be. But you know what? If you have chosen throughout the whole of your life that you want a life without God, then at the end, God will say, okay, then you can spend an eternity without me too. And frankly, that is hell. But when we put our trust in Jesus, we don't need to have that as something we're looking forward to. We can look forward to a fantastic new creation with Jesus at the center where we will not just be singing endlessly worship songs, but doing the most incredible things in God's new creation for us with Jesus right there at the center. In conclusion, you've you've referenced the fact that we don't just talk about Jesus, but we can talk to him in prayer. Can we do that now? That'd be really good. Jesus, we want to thank you that you're not just a figure of history and you're not certainly a figure of imagination, but that you were real and you lived and you walked this earth and you came to show us what Father God is like and to show us that Father is always ready to receive us, no matter how bad we've been or how we've messed up. And that when we put our faith and trust in you, we can not only be forgiven, we can not only get a brand new start, we can be invited in to that big story that God has been building from the beginning of time and that will come to a climax at the end. Help us, Lord, to put our trust in you and to not only say we believe in you, but to seek to live like you. And thank you that as we open up our hearts to you, you never turn us away. And for that, we're really grateful and we bless you. Amen. David Tavener was in conversation with Mike Beaumont, who's written about the people of the Bible throughout the Christian Basics Bible. Catch their conversations anytime on the UCB player or with your favorite podcast provider. Just search for Bible Biogs in 30 minutes.